So on the fifth day, God creates, he begins to create animals. He's no longer just shaping and ordering the landscape of the cosmos, the boundaries of land and water and day and night. On the fifth day, God begins to fill the earth with inhabitants. Firstly, aquatic ones. And then on the sixth day, terrestrial ones. And of course, uh, also on the fifth day, there's, uh, I don't know what you call them, avian ones, ones that are in the air, birds. That they are alive things that God is making on these days is cherished by our reading in the way it draws attention to the fact that they move. Uh, the vastness and particularity of living creatures is evoked in this reading with an astonishing poetic concision in a grammar of movement in this handful of words some of which are repeated multiple times that capture the array of different kinds of movements. Words like teeming and swarming and flying and creeping. So that even though we don't get an exhaustive list of every single animal that there is in the world, nonetheless, in, this, in, this, uh, in that really concise list of words, we do kind of get a sense of the vastness and particularity of all the different animated creatures that there are. Up until this point in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, God's word has brought, as we talked about last week, God's word literally brings every facet of creation out of nothing except his own will into existence. But with the advent of living creatures, sentient beings, now a new thing starts to happen with God's voice. Now God's voice not only creates but speaks to some of his creation. He blesses his animals. The blessing he pronounces on living creatures is ordered toward filling the earth. Always, whether in the seas or in the skies or on the lands, whether fish, insect, bird, mammal, or human, what God seems to want in, in the blessing that he bestows, is for the world to be thronging and throbbing with life. At the moment that the creatures of the sea, or the creatures of the sky, or of the field, at the moment that God calls them into existence in this creation narrative, there already are swarms and flocks and herds. They come into being not just as pairs, and this is true of humans as well, but as populations, right, of species. And yet it is almost as if, despite the fact that they come into existence already as herds and flocks and swarms, nonetheless it's almost as if God deliberately leaves some of this work of filling up the earth incomplete. He makes a lot of stuff uh, each time he creates a species, and yet he doesn't make as many as he could. It's as if he's leaving room for animals to participate, in making the earth be a place that's not just inhabited, but that's truly abounding with life. He blesses the animals saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Indeed, if we were to ask ourselves, what is like and unlike, like, like when, we, when we get to human beings in a second, they are both like and unlike all the other animals. And if we were to ask ourselves, what is it that, that unifies all of the kinds of animals that God makes, including the human beings, 
One of the most prominent and obvious things here is reproduction. Reproduction is perhaps um, almost more than maybe one other thing is the thing that constitutes the unifying feature of all the, the vast uh, and diverse parts of creation. Reproduction, the, the capacity to answer that summons, to be fruitful and multiply, is one of the key features that's common to the life of all animal, all the animal world that God is creating. When God, uh, later on, God's going to bless human beings, by the way, with, with exactly the same words that he uses to bless, like the birds and the fish, okay? Be fruitful and multiply. So human beings have this in common with the rest of animals. And second, other than reproduction, the really prominent thing, which happens at the end of this passage, so I'm thinking here of verses, especially I think starting at like 29, essentially to the end. Um, the other thing that really unifies uh, creation is, the, the animal part of creation, is the summons to eating. Uh, it's that they eat, all right? So it's food. Uh, eating is the thing that constitutes the common life of animals, which um, may seem like that's the way it had to be, but it didn't. I mean, presumably angels, which interestingly are not explicitly narrated in this creation account, but that we know are a thing. Angels presumably don't eat, right? They are, in fact, living things. It seems like it would probably be right to say that they are in some way animate, but they're not eating things. But the things on earth that are animate, uh, they eat food. When God made animals, he made them hungry from the very beginning of creation. And as so many things, what it means to be a hungry animal at this point in the story of the world is both recognizable and not recognizable to us from our own experience of hunger. What's unrecognizable about this experience of eating and of food is that there's neither a possibility of excess, of, of gluttony, nor is there a possibility of, of uh, scarcity and starvation, right? And yet there is hunger. That's an interesting thing to think about, right? The experience of hunger that's not plagued by either its excesses or its deficiencies so when God makes animals, he makes them hungry. Food is the crescendo of the sixth day of creation. It's the place that you can see, like God giving, God feeds everything at the very end of, of the story of the six days of creation. He, he feeds everything. And the coherence of the whole gorgeously intricate tapestry of creation coalesces in that act of eating. So much for some of the places of commonality between humanity and all the other kinds of animals. I'm going to devote most of the rest of the kind of exegetical part of this talk to what distinguishes humanity from the rest of the animals. So last week we noted in the first portion of Genesis chapter 1 that it provides us with some of the most fundamental and crucial theological distinctions that we have in Christian theology. And that, and that distinction, that theological distinction is uh, the distinction between the creator and everything else, the, the creature-creator distinction. This week, we get a second important theological distinction, which is the distinction between human beings and all the other animals, uh, which is more important than you might realize in, inside Christian theology and is more peculiar to Christian thought. Uh, it contrasts other people's thought about animals and human beings more than you might realize. The distinction is decisively hierarchical, right? 
It's decisively hierarchical. Human beings are, in every way, superior and more important than animals, than all the other animals. At the same time that there's this decisive superiority of humanity, the, the distinction nonetheless leaves human beings as members of the animal family, right? Um, so we still, it, it doesn't seem quite right to say that we are not animals. Uh, we are among the moving things. We are made on the sixth day as the last among the terrestrial kinds of creatures. It seems clear that scripture has grouped us in. And it also just seems observable that we sort of count as like mammals, you know? Um, so the way that scripture makes this distinction, it leaves, it nonetheless leaves us as members. It distinguishes us, but as members of the animal family. Man is an animal, one of the parts of creation in whom is the breath of life. And yet human beings are totally unsuperior and an unparalleled kind of animal. So there's about four different ways I can point this out to you. Uh, firstly, just from the vantage point of, uh, of like the fact that human beings get made last. And uh, frequently, when you're telling the story of a thing, you just do save the best for the last, right? But we can also see that this, uh, this sort of litany of, and God saw, and it was good, that we hear at the end of every single day, it doesn't become, and God saw, everything that he had made, and it was very good until the moment after human beings are made, um, which suggests not just that human beings are the best ones, but the creation in some way waited for human beings to crown or to complete the order that God had already made, right? But there are three other things that signal the, this sort of hierarchical relationship or the, the way that the unique way that human beings are distinguished from the rest of the animal world uh, that, that basically we can, if we, if we split up verse 26 into three parts, it'll help us to see this. So verse 26, let's start with the phrase, let us make man, all right? Let us make man. So Christians, noticing the plural, us, and then our in this verse, have always instinctively and rightly read the doctrine of the Trinity into this phrase, this goes back to what we said last week about the way that we Christians unapologetically read the Bible backwards. And we also unapologetically read stuff like Trinitarian theology into everything, any way we can. That's just the way Christians have always been reading the Bible, and there's no apologies we need to make for that, okay? So from pretty early on, Christians have been like, since we had such a thing as Trinitarian theology, Christians have said, us, oh, this is evidence of the Trinity, and found that kind of delightful. And I think that that's a, that's a, that's a faithful reading in these words, we glimpse the fact that it's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's creating the world. And as much as this is a faithful reading, what I really want to focus on and emphasize, though, is something slightly more basic and slightly more immediate to the texture of the scripture itself right here. And that's the contrast between, uh, again, between humanity and everything God has made so far, and the way that that contrast is evident in what comes after the word let, right? So pretty much every time God has made something so far, or at least that he's made specific features of creation so far, it starts off with the word let. But here, something different comes after the word let. 
Up until verse 26, it's always followed by the name of whichever creature God is making. Let there be light, or let the waters teem. But here the word let is not followed immediately by the name of anything in creation. Instead, here God says let, and then he begins to speak to himself. When God first began to speak the features of creation into existence, we might say that he was, the pattern of his speech is turned outwards, right? It's occupied immediately with the thing that he's making, with the work that he's doing, with the task and the work at hand. But when God makes mankind, he first turns inward. He takes counsel, we might say, with himself. Let us make man. There's a subtle but a profound difference of timing here. There's like a slightly less immediacy here, right? There's an interruption. Let us make introduces a moment into the text, a moment in which we get to hear the Lord not just creating, but deliberating, making plans to create, being purposeful. This difference, as our responsive reading from Psalm 8 tonight reminds us, it reveals the way that God has singled humanity out, that he's crowned us, as the psalm says, with glory and honor. So this is the first indication of of the special place of human beings in creation. Moving on in verse 26. Let us make man, to the next phrase here, in our image, after our likeness. In our image and after our likeness. We might ask, to begin to try to get some sense of what that means, in our image and in our likeness, by asking... um, Like, doesn't all of creation reveal God in some way, right? Like, doesn't all of creation have something to say, doesn't it have some kind of like a a sign uh, of God? I mean, necessarily, we have to say, I think, that creation, all of creation speaks of God. And certainly, the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans, makes some really strong claims about how, like, even people that have never heard of God are nonetheless accountable to God because creation clearly manifests him, right? And yet, it's only human beings that are singled out as made in God's image and in God's likeness. Only human beings are specifically patterned on God's own self. Among all the animals, only human beings are are designed with the purpose of being a sign and a symbol of God's own person. Not just of the fact that not just of the origin, right? Like all of creation, because it only exists by virtue of God's will, all of creation, because it only can be there because God gives a share of his being to it so that it can be, all of creation does speak of God. But human beings in some way image God, look like him in the world. Thirdly is this stuff about dominion and subduing. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. From the beginning, humanity, like all the other animals, has a place, which is to say that it's embodied, And it has a purpose. 
And that, that it shares with all animals, all right? But from the beginning, we also have a vocation, which is a little something more than just a purpose, all right? Like every other creature, God speaks human beings into existence. Excuse me, like every other creature, God speaks human beings into existence. But with human beings, God's word is also addressed to us as a calling. This is what makes it a vocation. Our creaturehood is stamped by a summons. The beauty of creation is its wholeness, all right? The way its members are so intricately related to one another, but the relationship of human beings to everything else that there is is utterly unique because the whole shebang, the entirety of it, is given to human beings as the province of our dominion. There's all this vast thronging membership of the animal kingdom. And it, it, it would be right to say that every single piece of it is in some way connected to the rest of it, is related to the rest of it. And that's part of what makes it beautiful. But the relation that human beings have to the rest of creation isn't just what we might think of as like horizontal and like a web of connectedness, but that we are called over it. We're called to subdue all of that vast intricacy, to exercise dominion over it. Before I even try to say what dominion and the word subdue mean, I just want you to pause to consider the fact that human beings are given an earthly vocation. That in the beginning, human beings are given an earthly vocation. God makes human beings. This is the same God that you worship and you've been learning how to worship since you, I don't know, grew up in a youth group wherever you did or wherever you learned about God. And that same God, when he makes human beings, he turns them to the earth. Dominion and subduing has to be understood firstly with reference to God's own activity. Right? This is another outworking of what it means that we're made in the image and the likeness of God. Right? So these words, we don't just get to import whatever we want into them. They're pretty contentless, or we should try to let them be pretty contentless. Instead of being like, dominion equals, and we already have our ideas of what dominion is from Disney movies, or whatever, we need to be like, dominion is what? And like, try to let some local data here in the scripture fill that in, right? And so firstly, I would suggest that we need to, to, to fill in what dominion means with reference to God's own activity in the creation narrative. These activities of exercising dominion, our vocation of subduing, is a feature of the image and likeness of God, which suggests that dominion pertains to creatively bringing order, it means bringing forth and supporting life in ways that are intimately attentive to the good and very good things that God has made, that honor those things as such, that honor them as good. Dominion and subduing then can't mean, if God is, is the, the sort of pattern, right? His activity in the creation era is, is the pattern. It can't mean anything selfish. In short, dominion here cannot be the same thing as exploitation, right? I think that's a help. To me, that's a helpful distinction between dominion and exploitation. We have a lot of prejudice. Some of it is very well warranted against, first of all, just the notion of hierarchy, much less the notion that like authority can be a positive thing at all. And so we maybe especially have to work hard not to forget that a word like dominion can have everything to do with affection and care and selflessness. 
And the reason it has to, has to have to do with that for us as Christians is because that's who God, that's the way that God's lordship is operative in our own lives, right? At any rate, so it's not the same thing as exploitation. At the same time, however, dominion is absolutely a matter of human beings being over creation. That word happens like three or four times, over, over, over. They are set over creation. They occupy a role above it. All the things that swarm and fly and creep through the earth are moved by their natures, or we might say their instincts, to satisfy their hunger, to mate, to multiply. But human beings are given more than just hunger and thirst and a drive to reproduce. More than instinct and nature, human beings are given agency and will. And this agency comes to them as a summons to responsibility for creation. It's not just a place within creation, but it's a summons for creation. The invitation to subdue the earth doesn't mean, then, just beating it into subservience, but it means an authorized artistry. An authorized artistry that receives the given nature and life of things that God's made and offers something of our own agency and vision that brings some of our creative work to it in order to participate in the way that God is shaping and ordering and guiding it. Does that seem like a pretty satisfying definition? I think so. Moving on. So it's, it's something akin to husbandry, which is an old, old-timey word. If you don't know what that word means, you should read Aldo Leopold, San County, San, San County Almanac, or maybe some Wendell Berry books. Anyway, it's something like husbandry or shepherding or maybe gardening. All right, moving on. Verse 27. Male and female, he created them. God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Scripture takes time to note that God made human beings male and female, which is interesting, given that maleness and femaleness is already very strongly indicated in the reproductive capacity of all the rest of the animals, right? But for whatever reason, it's only whenever human beings are made that, uh, that Scripture devotes some ink to saying, male and female, he created them. Words like these, male and female, sound strangely fraught in our time and place. The intensity of cultural conversation right now about human sexuality and gender and the pace at which speech codes about men and women are changing in our society, they make it really tempting to hear this phrase and to think that like, almost that like the reason it's here is because uh, almost like the arguments that we're having as a society and as, and as Christians right now in America, we're like an original feature of creation and like God is like weighing in on those polemics and that, and that rhetoric that surrounds sexuality, and gender. If we're honest, in fact, we might be rather confused, actually, living in the society that we do live in, as to what those words, male and female, even mean. Or at least about how we're allowed to use those words anymore in our society. But even though we're all anxious about sex and gender right now, Scripture is not very anxious about it. Rather, male and female 
And by the way, this like, lack of anxiety is important for our anxiety. Does that make sense? So I'm not trying to say the scripture says like, meh. But it's exactly that contrast between our like, ah, and the way that the Bible is like, male and female. That we've got, we, we can find some important resources here. Male and female, biological sex, it's an original and fundamental distinction in the scriptural account of creation. In scripture, male and female are seen by God to be very good. That's how they are described. Moreover, maleness and femaleness, biological sex, appear in our reading tonight to even have some kind of of primary importance in what it means for human beings to be made in the image and in the likeness of God, right? So when the Lord deliberates in verse 26, let us make human beings in our image and after our likeness, he goes on to go ahead and do that thing in verse 27. And we get that phrase again. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. But image and likeness are not like exhaustively explained in these verses. Um, which doesn't mean that we can't give a really robust scriptural account of them. I'm just saying like right here in the immediate context, there's not a huge amount of detail to flesh out what image and likeness of God actually mean. But male and female are the most immediately proximal piece of detail following in the image and likeness of God, right? And so this has something to do, like maleness and femaleness then, is, has something to do with what it means that we're made in the image of God. Although by literary custom, we typically refer to God in the masculine, both male and female are facets of the image and likeness of God, and they are both evident in our creaturehood. Both, therefore, are to be honored in their uniqueness and in their particularity, and together they are to be celebrated for their reproductive potential. Because male and female, he created human beings, human beings can participate willingly in the Lord's own ongoing creative work, in part by conceiving and raising children. Another thing to note here, although there is a hierarchy that we've been noting, the greatest possible distinction and a hierarchical hierarchical distinction between humanity and non-human animals, there is not any evidence, I would argue, in this narrative of creation for a hierarchy between male and female human beings. There absolutely is a hierarchical relationship between human beings and all the other animals and the rest of creation. But there's, no, there's nothing here to suggest any kind of a superiority or a hierarchy in, uh, between women and men here. One thing that male and female does here is it really decisively ties human creaturehood to the concreteness of being enfleshed. Right? The words male and female, part of the work they do is they, they make it really clear that being a human being has everything to do with being embodied. All right? There's no such thing in Scripture as a disembodied human being. This is important for you to get. There's no such thing in Scripture as a disembodied human being. There is, 
you know, we want to pretend there's such a thing at, at Christian funerals sometimes, that there's such a thing as a disembodied human being. You know, thankfully, Grandma has left this vehicle here and has gone on, you know, to really be alive now. And it may be that in some sense, Grandma has already gone on to be with the Lord, but that is just part of Grandma that's with the Lord so long as that body is still there at the funeral. There's no such thing in Scripture as a disembodied human being. There's no such thing. There's, there's nothing Christian about the idea that the most real part of us is our soul. There absolutely is such a thing in Scripture as a soul, right? But a soul without a body is not a human being any more than a body without a soul is a human being, Christianly speaking. So male and female, to me, I mean, I don't know if this is going to make any sense to the rest of y'all, but I'm like, yeah, this is like, I'm just like, we got bodies, right? You know, it may be that nothing so epitomizes fleshly existence as do genitals. To me, I mean, I'm not saying that's like my favorite part of human beings, right? But it, it is, it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Angels don't have those, I don't think, right? I mean, think about this. It wouldn't be wrong to paraphrase this verse. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them not as ethereal, glowing, formless, angelic beings with crotches like Barbie dolls. No, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. In the image of God, he created them with penises and testicles, vulvas and ovaries, he created them. Right? That's what's being said here. And I'm not trying to say that maleness and femaleness is reducible just to genitals, Right? But there is something about this that's a very fleshy detail. Are you tracking with me here? And that's important. In the Christian scriptures, human beings just are embodied. In the Christian scriptures, a disembodied human soul is not a complete human being. But whereas the reality of souls, as I mentioned earlier, they are attested in scripture. Identity is not so much it's not as robustly attested in Scripture. I'm not saying you can't give an account, a Christian account, of what identity means. But it is not anywhere as straightforwardly attested, certainly not, in the creation narrative, as is flesh. Or throughout Scripture, as is the idea of the breath of life or our souls. And whatever account we could give whatever Christian account we might properly be able to give of what an identity might be, it would be radically different. It would have to be radically different from the way that word is being used in our current moment in society. The notion that a person's so-called identity, the idea that a person's identity could exist independently from her flesh is scripturally inconceivable. The idea that there could be such a thing as an identity that is independent from a human being's flesh is scripturally inconceivable. And the further allegation that a person could determine his so-called identity, could decide what his identity is in a kind of bizarro ex nihilo, just by virtue of the fact that I decided, simply by expressing it or by asserting it, is dangerously absurd and should be so not only for Christians but for anyone that isn't too afraid to recognize it. 
Transgender ideology and activism, it entails a deep and a thoroughgoing rejection of the gift of creation. A deep and a thoroughgoing rejection of the gift of creation. It advocates, among other things, for actual violence against the gift of human flesh, as if the mutilation of our creaturehood were somehow a triumph of human rights, which, by the way, is another thing that doesn't show up in the creation narrative because there's no such thing. That's a whole other conversation as rights, but whatever. Moving on. Right, so transgender ideology and activism, it contains a metaphysics and an anthropology that's utterly irreconcilable with Christian theology. The notion that gender can be decoupled from sex or, the so, or that so-called identity can be created just by my own decision, again, it's absurd. And I, I mentioned this, I'm going ahead and bringing this out in the open now, because it strikes me that as much as liberal and conservative Christians think that they are in disagreement about issues of human sexuality in our society right now, as much as denominations continue to split up over questions of human sexuality, sexuality right now, and as much as people on like all sides of, of the Christian conversation about sex uh, sort of triumphantly feel like they are correct, it strikes me that both liberal and conservative Christians are distracted and also lagging behind in some really important ways in the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. What I mean is that both liberal and conservative Christians still are talking mostly about homosexuality, which is an important conversation. I'm not trying to say that it isn't. But the way that we are talking about it these days misses the fact that, culturally speaking, homosexuality has been resolved. I'm not saying that it should be totally resolved for Christians, but I mean in the place where we actually live, we are way beyond trying to figure out what to do about homosexuality. As a society, that issue is resolved. And in your lifetime, it will be part of Republican platforms, okay? It's not going to be a thing that Americans are that divided about anymore, which doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't argue about it. But there's something about the way that it preoccupies us that makes it seem like we, we haven't woken up to the fact that 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 conversation has already been resolved in our society and it's being rapidly subsumed along with lots of other things that may have a lot or nothing to do with sex. But they're being rapidly subsumed by a tidal wave of trans activist ideology. This seems to have escaped people's notice on all sides of the Christian debate about sex. Let me say some more about that. You might think that if you're a conservative on the question of the gays, then, that will, then being conservative about the gays will automatically inoculate you against the seductions of transgender ideology. The thing is, though, that even the Christians who think that they are biblically conservative about the issue of homosexuality are really manifestly hitting themselves. They aren't biblically conservative, actually, because of the really conspicuous ways that they're not willing to be consistent with their biblical ethics about sex. The Christians who describe themselves, on the other hand, as, as centrist or moderate or even le or like liberal on the issue of homosexuality, interestingly, 
when I talk to them, and I'm thinking here especially of pastors, I will hear people describe themselves as being centrist or moderate and or some way affirming about the practice of homosexuality. But they will often point out unsolicited that in some way they want to draw a line between an affirmation of the practice of homosexuality and transgender stuff. But when they draw this line, you can tell that like, it's like transgender doesn't, it's like they don't think it's like a real thing that's happening. Like it's like an it that's out there, but it's like never really going to happen here. Which just reveals how inattentive they're being to the way that the rhetoric of transgender activism is gobbling up like everything in our society right now. But even more so, I detect among self-described conservative, college-aged Christians. So I'm talking here not just about pastors, not just about, you know, like boomers that are, they love nothing more than argue about what people do with their genitals. I'm talking about people your age, conservative, college-age Christians. I detect among college-age Christians who call themselves conservatives, who come from, you know, conspicuously conservative denominational backgrounds, what I see in them when I really talk to them is a real lack of conviction and uncertainty about matters of human sexuality and and maybe especially about trans ideology. What I see in people y'all's age who call themselves biblically conservative when it comes to this is, is a kind of de facto ambivalence about trans stuff. And for my own part, just to show you my cards here, I consider myself to be biblically orthodox as regards human sexuality. And I, I hold the convictions that I think are a part of that with some agony, which I'm not going to detail right now. But some of the things I'm about to tell you, I feel agonized about. I don't like, I'm not like stoked that these are my convictions. But they are, in fact, my convictions. And they are what I take to be biblically orthodox convictions as regards human sexuality. What that means, so far as I can tell, is that I can't see a way to affirm the practice of homosexuality. That's one of the entailments, from what I can tell, of being orthodox and biblical on human sexuality. It also means that I definitely can't see a way to affirm the practice of divorce and remarriage except in some very specified cases. Which is arguably, divorce and remarriage, far more deeply contrary to scripture than homosexuality is. It is much more conspicuously, much more radically a rejection of Jesus' own teaching about human sexuality, divorce and remarriages. So as a biblically orthodox person as regards human sexuality, I can't affirm the practice of homosexuality. I can't see a way to affirm the practice of divorce and remarriage except in some very specified cases. And I think that's a much deeper issue, actually. But I think trans ideology may be even more impossibly irreconcilable with Scripture and Christian theology than either of those. Does that make sense? I don't know, actually, where American society is going to end up on this. It's tempting to make predictions, but actually I don't think we can. We might go the way of Canada and other places. 
But there are also signs that America might go in a different direction. But of course, as Christians, America ultimately can't be our greatest preoccupation with these questions. The thing that's supposed to most deeply orient and occupy us is our membership as a city set on a hill, as the outpost of the kingdom of God, as the community that's supposed to be bearing witness to the gospel. And it's clear, as, as people trying to be the church here where we live, that for the time being, even though we don't know where this is going to go, for the time being, trans ideology has a voracious and an amoebic grip on virtually every facet of speech and thought in the society where we are on mission, okay? And I say that not because I want you to get pissed about it or because I want you to make the mistake of thinking that I'm pissed about it, but because what that means is that we cannot be ambivalent about it, right? Ambivalence is worse to me on this than, like, acceptance, um, because it's just lazy on some level, right? We can't be ambivalent about it. And I'm warning you, I think most of the people in like iGen or Gen Z, I think y'all are ambivalent. I don't think you're trying to be, but I'm just, heads up, you are. You're ambivalent about this for the most part. And you're gonna have to try not to be. And I think it's not least because holding robustly Christian views, where this ambivalence comes, ambivalence comes from, about this stuff, it's going to start requiring, it already does require, and it's going to require probably even more in the future, in the immediate future, it's going to start requiring a kind of courage that we're not used to having to have as Christians. You know, like, maybe you were the uber-Christian kid growing up who had the courage to take your Bible to school and your Bible carrier. That's great. I was that kid too. Um, but the kind of courage that I think we're going to need going forward in the direction our society seems to be going in is going to be, by orders of magnitude, much greater than what we've had to practice so far. It's going to become costly to believe about human beings what Christians are obliged to believe. And when I try to make sense of where that ambivalence comes from, I know that it comes in some ways from the fact that y'all grew up with this rhetoric already being sort of like, you know, jacked into your head, depending upon how much social media you're on from a young age, et cetera, right? It also has come from the way that it has infiltrated uh, education. So it's partly from your formation, but also it's because it's so extremely evident that deviants from the accepted regimes of speech is costly. It's getting costlier. And that's why you're ambivalent. Because it's rewarding to be ambivalent. Listen, I was talking to a student earlier today at the most Instagrammably Christian coffee shop in town. All right? We were sitting by a window. Outside the window was a guy who was literally underlining verses in his Bible with a ruler while his extremely Christian girlfriend ate her pastry. I would venture to guess that there were zero people in that building who were not evangelical Christians. Heck, I would bet money that there were zero people in that building that were not Southern Baptists. Passionately Southern Baptists. All right? And yet, when the subject of gender came up, 
The student I was talking to, who was a freshman, looked around the room as if he expected to see the Gestapo hiding behind a newspaper at the table next to him, and he lowered his voice to, in an audible, tremulous whisper, and said, you know what really, everything these days about gender. I was like, what? Gender. Oh, gender, okay. There's a regime of speech that is being felt even in a place like Ruston, Louisiana right now. And that's, that's new. I say all of this um, not because I think that transgender people themselves are actually like our enemy. Um, nor do I say it to like make anybody the last thing I want to do is, is make anyone angry or afraid. In fact, I want to be really clear about this. We don't have to give in to the temptations of fear or the temptations of anger. Uh, we definitely don't need to like, take on the narrative of like, self-pity that some kinds of Christians in our society that do seem to be sort of worried about this are taking on, which then sort of leads people into this political foment where they're like, because we Christians are being persecuted, we've got to make America be a place where Christians aren't persecuted. Like, that's wrong. Firstly, persecution is not something Christians have ever thought they were supposed to try to eliminate. Okay? We're not entitled to not be persecuted. And I don't know that we are being persecuted yet. All I'm saying right now is we've got to learn to have some courage. All right? So we don't need to give in to the temptations of fear and the temptations of anger. Neither one of those things are going to work. But we do need to recognize that we have to speak truthfully. And speaking truthfully is going to mean that we've got to refuse to equate love with so-called tolerance. Tolerance, if you really drill down into what that word means, and has always meant in America, not, I mean, since way before all this sexual revolution stuff happened, tolerance is always hidden inside of it, violence. And the question of, like, who do we not tolerate, though, right? So we have to refuse to accept that loving is the same thing as what America means by tolerating. And that, in turn, is going to mean that we should not expect that we will be tolerated. And this is the actual crux, above and beyond courage. What that means is that we're going to have to learn how to love our enemies and to pray for the people that want to do us harm. Because those are the people that Jesus loves and wants to gather into his kingdom. Those are the people he prays for, just like us, when he's dying on the cross. All right, moving on to the stuff that is uh, less whatever to talk about. Let's talk about dominion and fruitfulness one more time and about how these things might have anything to do with the way that we could put this passage of Scripture into practice in our lives. How can we pattern our lives, our goals, and our dreams, and our pursuits in ways that are more deliberately situated within the scriptural vision of human creaturehood that we have in Genesis chapter 1? How can we pattern our lives in ways that are more deliberately situated within the scriptural vision of human creaturehood? God made human beings, and he turned them toward the gift of the earth. And the earth is still our proper home, even now. In our own time, in the time after the fall, things are very different than they are where we stopped reading in Genesis tonight. They are very different than they were for the very first human beings in this reading tonight. We dwell here now 
it's true as people that are on a kind of pilgrimage from here to elsewhere. And yet, that elsewhere that we're on pilgrimage toward, that future toward which we're journeying, is a new creation. A new and restored heaven and earth. In short, this reading, then, it still accurately depicts some of the most basic features of what kind of animals human beings are and what our purpose is. And so I want to I ask ourselves some questions about those categories of dominion and fruitfulness that we talked about earlier, right? As regards dominion, at the level of life goals, at the level of your vocation and your career, what you want to be when you grow up, I have this question for you. How near or how far from the stuff of the earth is your hope for career going to land you? How near or far from the stuff of the earth is your career going to take you? Consider my own line of work, all right? It's a mixed bag as regards how close I get to be to the earth on a daily basis. On the one hand, I get to devote a huge portion of my attention to caring for and trying to cultivate flourishing in the very highest and best of all the kinds of animals the Lord made. I get to spend the lion's share of my time staring into the eyes of other human beings. And that's being turned to creation, all right? On the other hand, I end up being a laptop jockey a lot, too, sitting in front of a computer screen or in front of books, which also has some of its, some joys, right? But it means that I've got to make sure I have as many meetings as possible on the Greenway or someplace that lets me be outside, all right? So whatever, this is, this is something you can ask about any job you want to do when you grow up. Um, when you decided what your major was going to be, how many of you asked yourself how close it's going to put you to the earth? A couple of you, at least one. Is your work going to, but, but not just how close is it going to bring you, right? Here's another question you need to ask. Is your work going to exploit the world that God's made? Or is it going to be ordered toward health and healing of the world that God has made? There's a whole lot of jobs that can fall into either one of those categories, all right? But that's an important question. In a more immediate sense, as regards dominion, I want to think about dominion versus exploitation, that contrast. Remember, right? The contrast between dominion and exploitation as regards your disposition toward your own person, your own creaturehood. How much of your lifestyle is really reflective, like in the way that you, like, just live reflects the vocation of dominion. How much of your lifestyle is determined by what God has made and the way he's made you by contrast to how much of your life is governed by the things man has made? How much of the, the, your lifestyle is receiving the gift of what God has made? Or by contrast, how much of your lifestyle is is governed by the things that man has made in an effort to overcome what God has made. That might seem kind of abstract. I may or may not be able to clarify. When God completes creation and looks at it, he sees that it's very good. And the boundaries and the limitations of every creature are part of that description. Very good. God turns human beings toward the gift of the earth. He gives them the work of dominion. But as they turn to creation, they encounter the order that God has woven into it. 
And so in finding that order, they find the natural given limits and parameters of their own creaturehood, the boundaries of their own creative work. So that even while accepting authority over creation, human beings are also at the same time, they're submitting to the larger rhythms of the world that the Lord has made and the rhythms of their own being, right? So whatever it means for us to exercise dominion, it cannot mean working against or in defiance of God's own purposes for the world, nor can it mean working in defiance of our own proper limitations. Unfortunately, for the most part, the rhythms of the life we assume are normal and acceptable. They're rhythms that are lived according more to the technologies and ambitions, which we kind of take for granted, which have been designed to make the limits of creation and our own creaturehood obsolete. Our lives are more often lived by stuff we've made than in submission to the rhythms of the world God has made. As if the basic shape of the world and the basic limitations of our creaturehood were obstacles that need to be overcome. Here's one example. What changes would you have to make if you were going to try to bring your daily schedule into conformity with the rhythms and the limits implied in the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day? What if you were going to bring your life's work in this season of your life into the bookends that are implied in that rhythm, and there was evening and there was morning each one of the days of creation? Or if you were going to bring it into the limitations of day and night, which is like the very first big distinction that God makes, right? What do you think human beings did at nighttime in this passage? The folks that were around at this time, what do you think they did at nighttime? Yes. Have you ever noticed how much nighttime there is, though? Especially during certain times of the year. But even right now, there's a bunch of it. Have you ever gone backpacking and the sun goes down, especially if you're alone? You're like, okay, well, uh, filtered my water, I ate my food, I guess I'm going to go to sleep. And it's like, wow, this is going to be a while. How much do you sleep? And look, you can be a pagan guru and ask that question right now, all right? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to ask this question. You can just be like a good granola podcaster and ask that question, okay? But I'm asking it because of the kind of Bible that we have. How much do you sleep? Is it imaginable to you that the answer to that question is a matter of spiritual discipline and not just personal preference? That the answer to the question, how much you sleep, that's a matter of spiritual discipline and not just personal, personal preference. Here's another one. Let me, let me remind you of something that happens here with food at the end of this passage. Uh, behold. We ought to say that word more. Anyway. Um, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. All right. Here's another question. How much green stuff are you eating? 
you know, while I'm on the granola podcaster kick here, how much green stuff are you eating? How many seeds and nuts and fruits? Which are the kinds of foods, the only kind of foods that are mentioned at the beginning of creation? I just want to make a disclaimer here. I'm not open to being convinced that I should be a vegetarian, okay? And I have really strong New Testament scriptural precedent upon which I'm not willing to be persuaded in that direction, okay? Um, with that said, it seems clear, as we're going to point out later on, that carnivorousness, just to cut to the chase here, like, those human beings, they didn't have canines in their head, okay? And neither did any other animals all over the place, which is unimaginable, right? But there's no flesh that's given for food in the beginning of creation, which doesn't mean that meat's bad for folks. It's not for us folks now, okay? Um, but I think what I'm trying to point out here is that there does seem to be in the same way that we need to be asking how close our work and creative energy keeps us in contact with the earth, there does seem to be something to the idea that the less distance there is between the food that we're eating and where it is in the place God makes it grow, um, the better. Um, again, you don't have to be a Christian. You can, you can be a, you know, a hippy-dippy pagan to recognize this. But scripture also seems to recognize it. And think about this. How much effort, have you ever tried to prepare the majority of your own food, all right? Like, like I, maybe some of you here do, but I would think maybe especially as people in your stage of life right now, with some of the conveniences that you have in a meal plan, et cetera, not to mention the amount of busyness that you think you have in your life. Like, what if you just decided not to eat the green stuff and the things that are going on the trees and et cetera, right? But you just started with like, I'm going to make my food, all of it. I'm going to make my own food. Or I'm going to eat food that someone else has made themselves, right? It takes an enormous amount of effort. I mean, if you do that, a lot of other things will actually have to change in your life. Um, and then if you add to that the effort to like try to eat food that is comparatively raw and natural, um, there's even further level of, of difficulty that's entailed in that. And I think, if nothing else, that's important for recognizing the way that the economy of the world as God made it is deeply at odds with the economy of the world where we find, of like the society that we find ourselves living in, which is not ordered toward our flourishing, even though food is still, as in every economy, always a fundamental part of it, right? It's not ordered toward our flourishing. I'm not so much trying to advocate here a certain kind of diet, but what I am trying to draw attention to in a large sense, is the staggering centrality that eating holds in our creaturehood. And not only within our creaturehood, but how the staggering profundity of, of food and eating throughout the whole biblical story. What we do and don't eat is as much, is so, it's about so much more than like our vanity, or our self-image, or our lifestyle, all right? It's about the kind of animals that we are. It's about the kind of life God wants for us. It's about how close or distant we are from the creation God's made. And maybe most importantly, what scripture seems to suggest is that what we eat and how we eat has everything to do with the kinds of relationships we have with other people or that we don't have with other people. 
what we eat and how we eat has everything to do with whether or not we are creating and being membered to a certain kind of community or not, and whether or not we prioritize relationships in community or not. So food, let's do something with that. How about fruitfulness? To what extent is your life responding to this God-given vocation of fruitfulness in Genesis 1? I'm not talking here about having kids, although I, I wish for you that you will one day. That's, it's, uh, it's good. I can, I can attest. Uh, but I'm not so much talking about having kids when I ask about this vocation of fruitfulness. What I am saying is that the summons to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis, it is developed throughout the canon of Scripture, all right? And it's taken up and it's expanded and it is fulfilled in astonishing ways in the emergence of Christian mission in the New Testament. In the same way that God yearns for animals and people to increase, to reproduce, to spread, to fill the earth and the skies and and everywhere, uh, God yearns for the message of the kingdom to spread across the globe. In the beginning, God makes human beings male and female. He blesses them with fruitfulness, the fruitfulness of bearing children. Later, God will call Abraham, and he will bless the fruit of his loins, and he will perform a miracle in the barrenness of his wife's womb so that through Abraham, that God will give birth to a blessed people, a set-apart people, a people whose singularity is pregnant with the hope of blessing not just for them, but blessing for every nation under heaven. And then across the long arc of the story, finally the angel Gabriel will come to the Virgin Mary and say to her, Blessed are you. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, will go on to sow seeds. This is this reproductive feature of creation that's emphasized in the very beginning of Genesis, right? The Old Testament loves to talk about seeds. And how does Jesus describe the nature of his vocation? He'll sow seeds of the gospel, some of which will fall on good soil and grow up and multiply 10 and 20 and 100-fold. Jesus' disciples will become laborers in an abundant harvest, that he can see as he looks out upon the peoples of the earth. Be fruitful and multiply, the Lord says in Genesis. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, those words will become, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In Acts, those words will become, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And there, in that book, in the book of Acts, there, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we'll see the amazing, multiplying fruitfulness of the word of the gospel as it is empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit so that the refrain of the book of Acts is, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. God says to the church, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God says to each of us, be fruitful and multiply. You, go and make disciples. If you are a Christian, witness is your vocation. Mission is your purpose. No matter what you think your paycheck is going to be when you grow up, that's your purpose. 
To what extent do your priorities reflect that vocation of fruitfulness and making disciples? If the honest answer to that question is, not that much. My priorities don't really reflect that vocation. This table of communion is a good place to start making a change. Because here the Lord pours out that same Holy Spirit that overshadowed Mary's womb and conceived Christ. And they gave birth to the church in the book of Acts. Here, by the gift of the Spirit, the Lord feeds us in the deepest possible kinds of hungers that we have by giving us the gifts of his body and blood so that, we say at this table, we might be made the body of Christ for the sake of our mission to the world. Amen.